Um, before the lesson, something that's actually kind of relevant to the lesson, um, I want to say a couple things about Paul doing the scripture reading. Um, when I first met Paul uh, a few years ago, um, Paul had a lot of trouble reading. Um, and he really struggled reading the Bible and reading on his own. And so Paul has been progressively learning more and more how to read by obsessively uh, reading the Bible over the past few years. And if you know Paul, it's, it's amazing how well Paul reads out loud um, after these years um, and just how substantial it is and such a sign of growth um, for Paul to be doing something like that. And a lot of you don't know this, but a part of what you know, kind of heightens just the, the beauty of, of this. Paul actually reads the scripture reading over and over and over and over and over through the week. And he'll call me and read it to me and ask me about words that he's having trouble pronouncing. Um, and just wanted to encourage you guys with that, that you know, Paul just works very, very hard with uh, things like that. And it's related to the lesson because Psalm 19 really is a psalm that's to draw us into seeing more beauty of knowing God's word, thinking about God's word, meditating on God's word, and really doing all of that with the right condition of heart in the right context. Um, the Psalms, it's helpful, I think, the more you get familiar with the Psalms, seeing that although obviously you can meditate on each Psalm individually, there is a sense of interwoven continuity between the Psalms. Um, you know, the past few months I've done a lesson on Psalm 16, Psalm 18, now <laughs> Psalm 19. And I hope you've really gotten the idea that there is a sense of great timelessness in the principles of just how profusely the psalmist loved God. Um, that really their, their love for God, their attitude toward God, their humility in considering God, God's activity, God's work, not only is it timeless, but it's actually still very presently challenging, oftentimes to consider how much less they knew than what I know, and yet still how much more reverence and appreciation they had of God. In terms of actual introduction to the psalm itself, there's a couple of interesting things about the psalm. Psalm 18 talks a lot about God's part and how God had been doing all of these great things for David, empowering David, making it possible for David to fulfill God's purpose for him as a king to overcome his enemies. And something that I think is very common, um, I think it's very common in our culture, it's common with me, but I think it's just, it's always been common. Um, last week when we looked at Jeremiah 14, I think we've seen it there, that very often what happens is we think very highly in our expectations of God's side of things, right? We want God to bless us completely. We want God to be completely faithful to his purpose. We want God to do all of the good things that he's supposed to do for us. And we can very easily put so much weight in that without also having the humility to consider, well, what, am, what does God desire for me to do, right? There's maybe some part that I'm actually supposed to play in this. The psalmists don't make the mistake of seeing grand things with God, but then neglecting, well, what is God's will for me? And is there any importance to that? Is there any weight to that? 
With the Psalms, what we see in their faith is both the glory of God's promises and the faith that connects very obediently to those promises are completely balanced together, especially as we see it in Jesus. All of these things just ultimately really point to new covenant realities as they're communicated with Old Testament language, as I often say with the Psalms. Another interesting thing about this is um, the prayer doesn't really begin until verse 11 through 14. So many of the Psalms, they're like prayerful meditations or very like God-oriented meditations that flow very seamlessly between thinking about God and then talking directly to God. And then oftentimes in the Psalms, they'll think about God, they'll talk about God, they'll think about God and talk about God. When the psalmists think about God, that obviously motivates them to talk to God. And so we see that seamlessness in the psalm. Another thing that I I hope to kind of deal with is verse 1 through 6 seems like it's almost not even connected to the rest of the psalm, right? So obviously the song that we sang about Psalm 19, the law of the Lord, it didn't even deal with 1 through 6, right? So it kind of seems like, okay, so creation tells us the glory of God and, you know, the sun does its thing and that's great. And then, oh, wait a minute. Yeah, the law of the Lord is also perfect, right? So it seems like this very jarring, seeming unrelated connection, but I would really like to try to show how connected these ideas are and how verses 1 through 6 actually lead into the rest of the psalm. The first thing that um, just very generally, I think, lends itself to that is that this psalm progressively zooms in. So it starts in verses 1 through 4 with the heavens, and I think that's like the expanse of the universe and the night sky and all that that's out there. And then it zooms in a little bit more at the end of verse 4 and verse 5 and 6 with the sun, the effect that the sun has on the earth. And then it zooms in even more with God communicating through his word and different aspects of how God communicates with his word to to connect with mankind. And then it zooms in even more in verse 11 through 14, where David, as the psalmist, talks about how God is even seeking our innermost being to look into our being, to look into our thoughts, so that even the innermost aspects of who we are are given to God and see his glory. So there's a progressive, again, it it, it starts with looking at the heavens and their expanse and then slowly or rather somewhat rapidly in a short psalm, zooming in progressively. So we're going to start with verses 1 through 6 and see God's glory in the heavens. And I'd like to read verses 1 through 4 to kind of reintroduce this. Psalm 19, verses 1 through 4. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun. So the question I'd like to ask is, how do the heavens declare and communicate the glory of God? And by the way, this, this psalm, I think, is really all about the glory of how God communicates with mankind. Again, to connect with us on a very intimate, substantial level. But if you look at verse 1 and 2, the heavens are telling the glory of God. Their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. And then verse 2, this language is interesting. 
almost like the language kind of illustrating like a fountain pouring out. Day to day pours forth speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. And then verse 4, the middle phrase, their utterances have gone to the ends of the world. So the idea is something is being communicated and being communicated very loudly, very constantly, very abundantly. But in verse 3, it's not with verbal words and verbal language, so it's not with speech. And I'd like to begin thinking about this with thinking about how people communicate through art and visual means. Um, when you go to like a museum or you see artists painting things, oftentimes they're trying to communicate a message in some way through what they've painted or illustrated. I found out, for instance, in art history classes, like there was like this phase of history where people would draw like fruits and objects on a table with a very dark background. And you look at it initially and you're like, oh, that's nice, you know, fruits and whatever. Like it just, it looks like just a realistic painting. But then apparently every single fruit and every object holds some kind of symbolic significance where if you actually understand what the artist was trying to say, there's actually a lot of things being communicated through this art. And maybe something a little bit similar. When I was in Japan uh, a few years ago, I couldn't read anything. And so like everything looked like gibberish, right? But I could still understand like stop signs, symbols that represented like train station, you know, stuff like that where there were, there were visual things that I could recognize that were communicating things that even though it wasn't in word, it transcended the cultural limitations and represented something that is beyond just what that culture itself understands. Or you think about how people who create useful things or people who make great innovations in the world, they oftentimes become very famous and very well known because of these extraordinary things that they do. Like easy, easy example, if I say Bill Gates, do you guys know who that is, right? And do you guys know why Bill Gates is famous, why he's so rich? John doesn't know, but that's okay. Uh, but Bill Gates, obviously, he um, founded Microsoft, which, you know, Microsoft computers and um, that technology changed the world, right? And so the heavens are declaring something about God. Even if people don't pay attention to it or hear it, something is being communicated. And there's some pretty simple things that I think we can understand through this. Um, so before I read this, it's estimated that there are 100 billion, or it's estimated there are over 100 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy alone where Earth is generally. And then beyond the Milky Way galaxy, it's estimated that there are over 100 billion galaxies that obviously could each contain 100 billion stars apiece. And so the grandeur and the majesty of the universe is just mind-blowing. It's unsearchable. It makes you feel so small and so seemingly insignificant when you consider this seemingly infinite expanse that you can see when you look in the night sky. This doesn't really work in Savannah as much. And in a lot of cities, like you look in the night sky, and you can count like 15 stars, right? So it's, it's not as awe-inspiring as like I lived in Wisconsin, way out in the country for a few years. And you look in the night sky and it really, it really is very awe-inspiring how much you can see and all the different colors and just more stars than, than you can even fathom, right? And just the idea of the grandeur and the majesty of the universe, how unsearchable it is, 
If God is the creator, if he's the originator of all of those things, then God is even greater than that thing that he created, right? And what that does is it teaches us that God's glory, there's a sense where God's, God's nature and who God is, it should fill us with awe. And that the things that God has communicated in his word, that there is a grandeur and that there is a depth, that what we see in the stars and the heavens and the sky, that we should feel that same sense of awe and majesty when we realize that God's word is our window into the intimacy of the glory and the depths of his person and character. And so God's word, again, contain even greater grandeur and majesty because God's word actually more clearly expresses who God is than when you look at the night sky. And so the night sky may testify about the greatness and the majesty and just the, the, the unsearchable depths of God and his power and his nature, but really it's his word that really filters that glory into a form that we are able to approach and more intimately understand. And I want to think about some simple things with the sun. Again, it, it seems almost strange, like, okay, what did, why are you bringing up the sun in this context? And so the sun is like a bridegroom coming out of its chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run its course. Its rising is from one end to the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them and there is nothing hidden from its heat. I think the point of this is the sun actually teaches principles of the nature and the extent of God's rule and dominion over mankind. So just as God is faithful, the, the sun finishes its course every day. And no matter what mankind does, we don't have the power to stop the sun from fulfilling its cycle. People may wish that maybe we could have five more hours of daylight, but that's, that's not going to happen, right? And so we're not able to change that because the sun obviously is outside of our power to change. And it's the same with God's rule. And just as again, as the sun goes from one circuit to the other, in the same way, God is able to finish his work and God is faithful to the things that he purposes. But I think it's helpful to think about what is brought with the sun. I think the image of a bridegroom coming out of its chamber, there's a great sense of joy and celebration that comes with the rising of, its, of the sun and, the, and its fulfillment of its course. Life literally depends on the sun. Life is sustained by the sun. It's renewed by the sun. It's restored by its heat. If the earth did not have the sun, it would not even be a livable environment, right? Everything would just freeze over, right? Um, so everybody depends on the sun. It makes life possible. It makes joy possible. It makes it possible for the earth to produce things that we eat and that we enjoy. It makes it possible to work. So again, all of these things that make life livable and joyous, all of that comes from the sun fulfilling its course. And that again teaches us things about the nature of God's rule the nature of his word, and how much we should embrace God's word and desire to learn it and submit to it. So let's look at 7 through 10. I want to read this, and I want to start by kind of pulling back a little bit and thinking about a problem that I think is helpful to work out. But let's read 7 through 10 first. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. And actually, so pause there for a second. The sun restores the land plants, the cycles of life, the seasons, 
the Son makes it possible for life to be renewed and restored. And I think that is a very clear transition where the first thing he considers, the law of the Lord, the rule, the dominion of God, it restores the soul as the Son restores the soil of the earth. The testimony of the Lord is sure, just as the cycle of the Son is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart, just as the Son makes joy in life possible. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes, just as the sun brings light for us to navigate our environment. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever, just as the sun endures generation after generation. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. So I want to pull back a little bit and again, um, presents a problem that I think if we can understand the nature of this problem and work through it, it will end up heightening the value of what David says here in this psalm and really helping us understand how special this attitude is and how we can more specifically apply the same attitude. So I want to look at some New Testament passages that, again, I think presents us with a problem, right? So it says the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. Well, Hebrews chapter 7, and these are all passages we're going to look at that are dealing with the law of Moses compared to faith and what Christ has brought in the new covenant. Hebrews 7, 18 through 19 says, For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of the former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. So do you kind of begin to see the problem there? David says the law of the Lord is perfect and it restores the soul. But the Hebrew writer is saying, well, the law of Moses actually was weak and powerless to give life or restore life. We see that further in Galatians 3.21 where the same consideration is being made in Galatians. The contrast of, okay, so do Christians, should they keep the law of Moses? You know, and how does, how does all this work? And one thing that Paul inserts there, he says, if a law had been given which was able to impart life, which again is seemingly what David is saying, so I think then righteousness would have indeed been based on on law. And so Paul is reflecting and saying, actually, a law can't give life. It can't restore life. That's just not what a law can do. And if it could, then righteousness would have been based on law. And then we have John 5, 39 through 40, where Jesus was talking to enemies, um, people who are opposing his teaching and his life and ministry. In John 5, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. So, okay, again, you know, don't the scriptures lead us to life and teach us how to gain eternal life? You know, so again, this presents us with a problem that I think is very valuable to work out. So right after this in John 5, um, I thought about inserting this, but actually like it was more of like, I just don't have enough room on the board kind of thing because we're going to have one more quote. But Jesus will say to these same Jews, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourselves, right? So I think that really helps us to begin to understand the problem is in John, Jesus is dealing with an attitude where you have people who are looking in the scriptures, they're thinking about you know, how they can obey God, but really it's not coming from a place 
of genuine faith. It's not leading them to a love of God. They're really not seeing the righteousness of God in his word. And you have, I think, Romans 9.31, and this, this is very helpful. But Israel pursuing a law of righteousness did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. And so just like creation itself and the heavens, you know, how do you see the glory of God in the heavens? Is it because you're hearing some immediate verbal thing that's telling you that? Well, no. Your, your comprehension, your mind, your heart in meditating on God being the originator and the reason for these things, then through the lens of God's righteousness, the heavens have their proper context to teach you about the glory of God. David is not a Pharisee. He's not approaching the law of God as if this is where his righteousness is being derived from. David's attitude holds the balance that Jesus perfected in his ministry. I want you to go back to Psalm 23. And again, if you kind of think of the Psalms as being interconnected, there's ideas that balance out a lot of statements in the Psalms. Look at Psalm 23. Psalm 23, and just the first three verses. And again, I want you to see how David was applying an attitude where he was seeing the righteousness of God expressed through his word and was applying genuine faith and humility in his approach to the things that God expresses in his word. So again, Psalm 23, verse 1, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. Verse 3, He restores my soul. So, okay, is it... You know, the law that's perfect restoring the soul? Or is it God who's restoring the soul? Which is it, right? But really, it's both. And in the Psalms, what you find is the balance, again, of Christ's character. One more thing on this note. I would say the Pharisees, you know, despite their arrogance, they had a devotion to God's word, right? It was very broken because of their hypocrisy and their pride which made them self-righteous and um, Jesus proved that they were not as obedient as they were putting themselves forward as being. But you have to think about who had more reverence for God's word, Jesus or the Pharisees? And because Jesus had a different approach than the Pharisees, was his attitude, okay, you know, don't worry about being obedient. You know, the problem with the Pharisees, they're too concerned with obedience and they care too much about this whole submission thing. That wasn't Jesus's attitude. You know, but Jesus, because of putting things in their proper context, was able to have a greater reverence, a proper strict adherence to obedience that was all rooted in a love for God and a desire to be connected with God through genuine faith. And so Psalm 19, 7 through 10, the psalmist sees every aspect of God's word and its effect when it's connected with in faith in the grandest and most desirable sense. And so when he says the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul, the key thing is the law of the Lord. So I want to talk for a minute about what's being expressed in these different, from these different angles. When the psalmists talk about the law, very often they're not just talking about exclusively just the law of Moses that began on Mount Sinai but rather the expressed rule and dominion of God as a king. 
So everything in God's word that expresses his character, that demonstrates the nature of his rule, his right to rule, but also how to submit to that rule, the importance of submitting to that rule. What David sees is that submitting to God's rule, carefully obeying God, results in the restoration of the soul. I want to point out another connection to Psalms. Look back at Psalm 2 and just how different David's attitude was toward those who were the enemies of God. And I think even the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day would have had the same attitude, the the same problematic attitude in Psalm 2. Look at Psalm 2, verses 1. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. So you kind of see verse 3, the attitude that the world generally has about God's dominion, his authority, submission to his authority. The idea of verse 3 is it's, it's like God has us in chains. It's like he's binding us down with cords. Does that, is that how David sees the law of God in Psalm 19? No, David sees that submission to the rule of God is not constraining us, it's not holding us back. It's restoring our soul. It's redeeming us. It's leading us in the way of freedom and liberation in God's will. The testimony of the Lord is sure making wise the simple. I think it's helpful to think of testimony like what you see in a court case. So if there's difficulty of working out truth in a court case, they bring forth witnesses that can serve as giving reliable testimony to what really happened, right? And so testimony gives evidence of what is true. It points to truth. It signals it. And in God's word, when the psalmist and others talk about testimony, it's testimony that points to action. It can be both between man and God, where the testimony of the Lord gives evidence of the grandeur of God, the work of God, expectations of, well, what is God seeking to do? What is his purpose? What are his judgments? What does God want from me? How should I respond to God? And when I understand these things, it's enlightening and it makes wise the simple, people who are willing to humble themselves and accept correction from God's teaching. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. So, you know, it can kind of get difficult. Okay, what's the difference between law, testimony, precept, statute, commandment? The psalmists, in really meditating and immersing themselves in God's word, that difference mattered to them, right? And so I think what you see with people who wrote the psalms is they were so deeply invested and had such a love for God's word that these differences that seem insignificant, they knew where those lines were. I think it's helpful to think of a precept more as like a guiding principle, something that's like an advisory principle. But then also uh, precepts, statutes, I think is how it's translated in New King James, is also something like detailed rules for life. And I want you to think about what that would include for someone like David. What would be places in God's word that David would read and meditate on it and it would contain detailed guiding rules for life. Think about a book like Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Have you thought about Deuteronomy, Leviticus? 
Have you thought about those books as being books that are just beautiful, perfect? You know, that reading those things, it just rejoices your heart. But that's what David is talking about. That those things are not just beautiful because they give him a sense of direction, but all of these things are testifying to and communicating God's character. And really, if anything, because of what Jesus has accomplished, we are able to look back and because of what Jesus has done and really showing the full purpose of what God has been leading to in Jesus, because of being able to see God's character more clearly in Jesus, we are more equipped to look back on books like Leviticus and actually more clearly see God's character more perfectly expressed through those things. And then commandment. I think this one's a little bit easier, just considering it as an order to be actively obeyed. And David sees those things as pure. That everything that God says, everything that he commands is purifying. It makes holy. It leads us in holiness. And it, it enlightens our eyes. It opens us up to really understanding who God is, who we really are. It opens us up to really looking within ourselves and seeing how much we need God's help just like we studied with the armor of God and his power, it helps us understand how much we need God's power and strength to work in our lives, the conflicts that we face that we are powerless to overcome on our own. And it's the commandment of the Lord. It's when we obey him and we do it actively that we realize those things more deeply. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. I think it's helpful to think about this as really our view of God, esteeming God with the greatest awe, reverence and having respect for who God is. And the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Having this attitude toward God of fearing him, esteeming him, looking at him with awe and respect, it keeps us safely and securely in his presence. So I think in verse 9, when it says the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever, the idea is the fear of the Lord is the basis for an eternal and stable, rooted relationship with God that isn't just shifting constantly and it, it keeps our mind in a place where we heed God's warnings and respect his judgments. So the judgments of the Lord, every decision that God makes and every decision that he's promised he will make is righteous altogether. What Jesus really clarified, especially in something like the Sermon on the Mount, you know, when he said, like, your righteousness needs to surpass the scribes and Pharisees or else you will not enter the kingdom of heaven at all. Righteousness is not just what you do. It's not just doing the right thing. Righteousness is doing the right thing with the right intent and the right motive. Everything that God does, whether it's in the Old Testament or New Testament, if we see God punishing wickedness, if we see God rewarding the righteous if we see him suffering long, if we see him communicating about his judgments that are forthcoming in the future, every decision God makes is an invitation to look into his heart, to see God's selfless intention, how God always does what's necessary to work towards salvation, how God is always considering the greatest need of mankind in all that he does, and how God is always acting selflessly in all that he does. And they're righteous all together. That if we have genuine hearts, and if we're really thinking about God's word from a place of humility, every time we read God's word, every time we explore it again and again, 
we are able to explore greater depth of God's heart when we read his judgments. And then verse 10. They are more desirable than gold, yes, or yes, so I combined yea and yes there. Uh, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Just think, how motivated was the psalmist to really obtain these things, right? And were they just looking at God's word as information to be hoarded up or just getting to know the correct way of things and just kind of learning what was right? It's not really how they viewed it. They saw God's word, and I say they because David with the other writers of the Psalms, I think, really shared the same attitude. Um that they truly had God's word and obtaining it, following it, submitting to it, that this was their highest ambition. It was their sole desire. Um, I think if we really think about, again, what did David have access to in his lifetime? David had such a grand view of God, such a grand view of what was given in the Law of Moses and the other books that he would have had access to by inspiration in his day, David had a much narrower view of the character and purpose of God. So really, if you think about it, if David had such a narrower and more restricted view, shouldn't we then have an even greater desire to know God, to follow God, to see greater value in what comes from having a genuine heart in following God's will and trusting his promises. And so if anything, what David says here should be more fully realized because of how much more we have access to. So let's finish with 11 through 14, and I'll read this again. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Just a quick note there, that last word in the psalm, redeemer, that's a very significant word in the psalms. This is actually the first time in the psalms that the psalmists refer to God that way, right? And I think it's kind of interesting, in verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul, The very last word is, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And so what is David's greatest concern, right? What he sees is he needs God to restore, to bring back, to redeem, and ultimately to renew and um, give what only he can give. But I think generally when we think about the concluding prayer in this psalm, the psalmist's deepest concern and highest ambition is to please God both internally and externally, right? And again, this is where we find the kind of balance that's perfected and fulfilled in Christ's ministry. You know, the Pharisees and Jesus' opponents, they put all the weight on what was visible externally. And so Jesus would oftentimes tell them that it's like they're whitewashed uh, tombs. You know, it's like they're graves that aren't marked. And so People walk over them without realizing that it's filled with dead men's bones. That's not the case with the psalmists. Their deepest concern was to please God, not only with external action, but with internal attitude as well. So let's think about this more specifically. Verse 11. 
by them your servant is warned. I think a lot of us, since there's a lot of parents with toddlers here, um, consider the need and the value of warning and why that's so important. You know, especially like if we think about ourselves like in the class this morning, you know, Jesus saying if we don't humble ourselves like little children, it's impossible for us to get into the kingdom. Um, So why do parents warn young children, like good parents, right? Are they just trying to scrutinize them, browbeat them? Are they trying to rob them of joy and just make things difficult for them and just create unnecessary boundaries? No. As a parent, you understand you can see danger that the child cannot see and that you understand that certain decisions a child may choose to make They don't understand greater repercussions of those things, even if in the moment of the decision, there isn't some kind of immediate feedback that tells the child that they've done something wrong or harmful, right? And so as parents, good parents, warnings are to help children stay within the freedom of joy. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to prevent them from unintentionally, especially unintentionally, hurting themselves or hurting other people, right? And you're, you're, again, trying to prevent this from being done oftentimes carelessly and without knowledge. And I think we see that, again, in verse 12 and 13. So what does it look like for us to immerse ourselves in God's word, like what we see here? How should that affect us? I think we see in the Psalms continuously that what it creates is a greater internal honesty and a greater sense of continuous awareness of my need for God's help. So verse 12 again. What does David see that he needs most help with? He recognizes that as a child, again, we looking at it with the perspective of an adult, little children just aren't equipped or capable of recognizing how things can happen, why things happen, consequences of their decisions, And so in verse 12, David, seeing the grandeur of God and the majesty of his character, David says, who can discern his errors? That it's not within man himself to guide his own way, that I can't possibly properly understand what I'm doing and what I'm doing wrong. And so I need God to expose those hidden things in my life and, first of all, be long-suffering and merciful to me, but also to help me see those things so that I can understand them and be convicted of them and turn away from them. I want you to notice a couple of connections. Turn to Psalm 119. Um, Psalm 119 is, uh, I think most of us know, the longest book in the entire Bible. Um, We're going to look at the very last verse, which is verse 176. And Psalm 119 is kind of like a much longer version of what's expressed in Psalm 19. And it ends on a very curious note that I hope sticks with you and helps make this bridge between this and Hebrews 4. So Psalm 119, verses 176. So after he's finished for 175 verses, talking about how much he loves God's word, how dedicated he is to God's word, how much he hopes in God's word and loves following and submitting to God's commandments, he says, to conclude it all, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. You know, if you read through Psalm 119, I don't think you're going to conclude saying, this guy's lost. 
You know, he has no idea where he's going or what direction he is in or where he is. No, you get a pretty competent sense that this psalmist knows exactly where he is and where he belongs, right? But how has his immersion in God's word affected his attitude about where he is? By knowing God's will and immersing himself in it, he sees that he needs God's help, right? That he's gone astray like a lost sheep, and if God doesn't seek him and if God isn't the one acting, then there's just no hope to be found. And so he remembers God's commandments so that he can work with God and rely properly on his help. Notice this in Hebrews 4. I think this is just said very concisely at the end of Hebrews chapter 4. Um, starting in verse 12. Um, so I think the writer of the Hebrew letter is really getting to the heart of the fact that the, um, the most immediate audience he was writing to, they weren't really embracing God's word. They were no longer immersing themselves in it properly because, again, there is one consistent result that comes from really having God's word abiding within us. Look at verse 12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart, which again, David is freely inviting in Psalm 19. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Now look at verse 14 and where this leads. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What did David discover, again, in meditating on and immersing himself in God's word? David understood his need to draw near to God to receive grace and mercy in his time of need. And so when David is reflecting on being acquitted of great transgression, God acquitting him from hidden faults, keeping back David from presumptuous sins, from carelessness, not considering God's will. What he's asking is for God to help him in his need, right? And what this does is it ends up humbling David's heart and attaching him more in humility to God's majesty and grandeur. And I want to make this point before we conclude with verse 14. I don't know if you run into this, but I run in this, into this a lot when I'm studying the Bible with people who have kind of like a religious foundation, you know, so they have like a kind of faith, but it's not, um, it's really not sound, it's not complete and where it needs to be. And what I run into a lot is when you advocate for obedience in a more specific sense, maybe somebody has very generalized ideas about God and his will, but you start to point out things more specifically and say, well, we really need to know God's will and we need to really follow it and take him at his word, a person will oftentimes say, well, that's self-righteous or like, you know, that's like the Pharisees, you know, like that's, that's not right. That's not the right attitude. But I want to advocate this and I found this to be very helpful in really studying that out with people. True obedience, true obedience 
never ever results in self-righteousness or arrogance. It draws us into a unique attitude of humility that binds us to the Lord. You know, the attitude of the Pharisees and why there was conflict with Jesus, it wasn't because they were so obedient. It was because they were not honest about their disobedience. It's because they were putting so much weight on what they had the power to do that they were completely neglecting and completely unaware, willfully unaware, of all the things that Jesus was exposing were not being done and being disobeyed, and they were unwilling to be confronted with those things. That is not the attitude of the psalmists. The problem with the Pharisees was not that they were too obedient and too dedicated to God's word. It was that they were hypocritical. They were not obedient, and they became self-righteous. In a study I've had like that, I took someone to Romans 12, and we just read Romans 12, where it says, prefer one another, show hospitality to each other, um, be devoted to prayer. I just asked, okay, if we do these things, is that going to make you self-righteous, or is that going to make you humble? And they said, I mean, this is going to make you humble. And there you go. True obedience does not cause self-righteousness. And I just, to say it one last way, true obedience causes humility. Self-righteousness, self-righteousness is always an evidence of disobedience, not of obedience. Verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The desire of faith, again, that's interwoven through the Psalms and fulfilled in Jesus' life, their deepest, most innermost desire was that their constant meditation be pleasing to God. Their deepest thought in verse 14. And so again, not just the words of their mouth and not just their thought when in the temple system, when they're approaching the altar, to convey the idea of meditation means that which is most constantly lingering in the heart. What David desires the most is that everything that is constant within him, that it could be presented to God like an offering being made at the altar because God is his rock and God is his redeemer. This is what it looks like. This is a picture of what it looks like to love God and love his word. There's a very unique humility and attitude and a very unique way of following God that just isn't possible if we are not learning the discipline of learning to love God's word and immerse ourselves within it. It can be a challenging practice because of how intimidating God's word can be, because our lives get so busy, and because when we read God's word, we are very oftentimes confronted with how little we know, sometimes how little we feel we're getting out of it, and we just need to put our faith in God and push beyond those things and really work to love God's word more because of the unique things that are only possible when we put ourselves there. So that's the lesson, and what I'll do is I'd like to reread Psalm 19 from verse 1, and we'll stand and we'll sing the invitation song after reading. And if anyone has any spiritual needs this morning that need to be brought before the church, I'd encourage you to come forward at that time. Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. 
Day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is sure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock, my redeemer. Let's stand and sing.